Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are at number 84 already. And what do we have today? Today, we have a Dutchman as a guest. We have Peter Alexander, and his first name is Peter Alexander, which is one name. His academic position is research fellow at the Linguistic Department of Ghent University in Belgium. Peter Alexander is a historical linguist and philologist of the Old Germanic, Old Romance and Old Celtic languages. And his full name is Peter Alexander Kerkhoff. Um, before we get to the interview, there's one thing I need to correct because towards the interview, I am giving him his academic title, which at the time of the recording, he didn't have yet. So um, it's not Dr. Karakov, it is just Peter Alexander Karakov. But towards the future, if you're listening to this uh, towards um, or at the end of 2017, he will actually have this academic title. This is just for the record, and just to make sure that all things are in order. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Peter Alexander. How are you? Uh, good morning. Um, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good as well. That's a bit of a switch. We just we just spent the first, what is it, um, five, ten minutes or so talking in Dutch, because you are uh, a Dutchman as well. Welcome to the show. And now all of a sudden we have to um, switch to English. Which um, uh, which can sometimes be a shock as well. Anyways, um, we've got you here and I'm very happy that you're here because I bumped into you in listening to another podcast, which was a Belgian podcast. Uh, the Belgian podcast is uh, it's called Dirty Sheets. And it's a, um, uh, it's a, it's a, I say a Belgian con, Belgian podcast which talks about, um, well, say human intimacy. And this is a, uh, a clean podcast, so we can't go too much into details on what the context was that you talked about. Um, nonetheless, you're here, and you've got some magnificent stories to share with us. And so I'm very looking forward to this, uh, to this interview. But I, I've heard of you. We have been in touch for some time. Uh, back and forth and now you're on the show nobody knows you yet but that's going to change because i'm going to ask you right now tell us a little bit about yourself where do you come from um where are you now and what would you consider your cultural frame of reference i know there's a lot of questions yeah. uh, so just kick it off and see where we get where we uh where we end up with um so uh my name is peter alexander uh peter alexander kerkhoff uh, i'm a research fellow at the university of Ghent. Uh, in Belgium, mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, I have learned in the past year of living in Belgium as a as an expat scholar uh, that I'm probably very very Dutch. The Netherlands is, is the country in which I grew up, yeah. and I'm uh, my cultural reference uh, uh, would definitely be the Netherlands. Yes. I, yeah, living in Belgium really makes me uh, 
uh, at times even homesick. <laughs> but okay. I also have to uh, appreciate all the good things that they have in Belgium here. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So, yes. um, do you and uh, that's something you mentioned in the uh, before I hit record. Actually, you were not born in the Netherlands. No, no, I I uh, was born in Colombia, uh-huh. uh, and I was adopted, and um, so I grew up. Uh, uh, in the Netherlands, actually, very close to the Belgian border. Okay, all right. So, well, uh, yes, and and by the by the way you speak Dutch, I can immediately make out that you are a Dutchman and not a Belgian. And um, you've been living in Ghent for how, for one year now. For one year, yes. One year in Ghent, the uh, the yeah. the English speaking. This is my, my postdoc position. So okay. my position after finishing my uh, my PhD dissertation, which is a wonderful city actually, and it's about uh, it's about eighty kilometers, about what is it, 60, 60 miles uh, west of Brussels, to give you some geographical position. It's a university town. Um, spent there some time uh, last Friday. I was there as well, as a matter of fact, in a little place called Merelbeke. Nobody knows Merelbeke, and that's not going to change. We're not not going to talk about Merelbeke. Tell us a little bit about what you do at that university, because that is the link with culture. Okay, so uh, I'm a, an historical linguist, and my interest is in history and in language, and especially how uh, language can inform us about what happened not only a hundred years ago, not only five hundred years ago, mm-hmm. but even a thousand, two thousand, and especially prehistory six thousand years ago. So that is my my main interest. Um, and that is my training. I'm trained as a comparative European linguist. So we work with prehistoric languages, we work with the oldest languages that we know from Europe, and we try to say something uh, both about how that language was spoken, uh, grammatically, mm-hmm. phonetically, uh, but also we try to say things about um, yeah, about the people that spoke that language, and uh, how culture can inform, how language can inform us about uh, the the culture that these people had and the other way around, how culture can actually help us understand the traces of the languages that we have from a distant, distant past. Okay. What what languages do you speak yourself? I mean, it's English and it's Dutch, and but what other language would you speak? Um, I, <laughs> it's, it's a topic that you get asked uh, very often as a linguist. Of course. Um, and many linguists don't like the question because... Uh, they're, they're, they don't see their competency as knowing many languages, but I actually take great, great joy in learning languages. I actually think that with each language that you learn, uh, your horizon gets wider. Uh-huh. So I learned how to read an awful lot of languages. Um, most of them are dead languages, I have to say. Okay. But uh, the living languages, I think I can read around 10 or 12, something like that. Wow. And, yeah. and what are some examples, for instance? So, well, of course, Dutch and English, they, they are a given. Uh, I read French, uh, I read French very well, I read uh, German very well. I speak French and German also reasonably well. Uh-huh. Um, I read Italian, I read uh, Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also speak both reasonably well. Mm-hmm. We have to give me a couple of weeks to, to get back into it, because yes. as you know, speaking a language takes practice. True. But I can also read uh, most of the Scandinavian languages uh, reasonably uh, Russian. Um, I even back in the day uh, learned how to read Berber, uh, Moroccan uh, Berber, which, which is, is the, which is the, the, the inhabitants of the mountains in Morocco, right close yes. to the desert. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, learning languages is is my main joy, and I've learned how to read quite a lot of them. But if you don't maintain your languages, yep. you will lose them. So I try to focus on the Western European languages 
when it goes to speaking and reading. Uh, and that's, of course, apart from my academic compasses, which involve maintaining all these ancient languages from the Middle Ages. True. True, true, true. It's, it's, a, it's, I think it's an interesting concept um, to, to that extent. And it's, it's you, you fulfill the typical stereotypical Dutch thing because we are known in the world as, as, uh, as being able to speak many, many languages, which is not always true. But in your case, it typically is. Um, it, which brings me to another question. Um, how come a language dies? How, how, why is that? Or, or does it only evolve? Or can you actually say at a certain moment a language is not? Now it's dead. How does that work? Um, well, it's an interesting question, and um, there are two ways to go about this. Uh, so, of course, a language uh, can cease to be spoken, mm -hmm. um, and um, people can choose to switch over to a completely different language. Just that like moment, that. Yeah, a completely different language. For example, um, people in the north of France, uh, in the 6th and 7th century, so in the early Middle Ages, they spoke a very old variant of Dutch. Entirely all the way up to Paris. Mm -hmm. So even some of the place names that we have from north of France, Amiens, uh, Paris, Boulogne, uh, from the 6th and 7th century, those place names yeah. were actually written down, in some cases in Dutch, okay. because people were speaking Dutch there. Uh -huh. But at a certain moment, they switched over. They switched over to speaking late Latin. And at that moment, all Dutch in the north of France died. Okay. So when you have language shift, the language dies. So when that language is ceased to be spoken, mm -hmm. and they switch over to a completely different language, that's when it dies. But that's not—it's yeah. it's not a situation whereby people come together and say, "Let's have a meeting." And what are we going to do on the on our on our uh, list? Is what language shall we speak? Shall we do this or that? No. So what what is in general the driving force for this to happen? That's actually a very, uh, uh, a very understandable one. It's an economic one, and it has to do with prestige. Uh -huh. It has to do with, uh, with parents uh, thinking, what is for my children uh, the most beneficial language to speak? Okay. So that's the reason why a lot of people don't raise their children in dialect in the Netherlands, in, in England, uh -huh. because they think that learning the standard language holds the most prestige. So that's also what happens, for example, when people in France, from speaking uh, Old Dutch, mm -hmm. switched over to speaking Late Latin. Yeah. Th those parents thought, well, speaking Latin is more prestigious. They, they will get further in life. They will have more economic benefits if they learn from us how to speak this language. Yes. And they don't, when, they when parents choose to raise their children in a specific language, uh -huh. that is actually the mechanism of how language shifts uh, goes into yeah. goes into action. Something which you can clearly see nowadays back again, and in Belgium as well, because a lot of people, uh, French-speaking people in the uh, language border in Belgium as such, yes. send their children to Dutch-speaking schools because the parents think that indeed economical chances for their children are better if they actually are either bilingual or at least speak a very yes. high level of Dutch. Which is, and then we're talking 2017, of course, and you're going back to to the early um, Middle Ages. I went back way further, but um, this was one part. Uh -huh. of the story. So this is language death through language shift. Yes. And the other one is language death through language evolution. All right. Which also goes yeah. very very close to what you referred to. Yes. And there, the situation is a lot uh, is a lot murkier, because. We have to uh, define at what moment a language ceases to exist, even though 
its speakers continue to speak something which derived from the older version. Yes. So what's an example of an evolved language like that? Well, um, you, 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 for example, um, the, the main example in, in this regard is always the case of Latin. Yeah. Because the Romance languages, uh, languages like Spanish, Italian, French, Romanian, um, Retro-Romance, Mm -hmm. They they are one family. It's really clear to to, to see that they're all related. So yes. you take the word for father, padre, pater, etc. You can yeah. see it. You can see it very clearly. Um, and romance is is very special because we have a, lang a modern language family, mm -hmm. uh, but we also have something that comes really really close to its origin mm -hmm. because we have attested Latin from the classical times, mm -hmm. and that more or less is kind of the source of all the other Romance languages. Not exactly, it gets pretty technical, but it can serve for, for all practical purposes as well. This was the mother language. Mm -hmm. This mother language split up in specific ways. Mm -hmm. So the question is, so when did Latin split up? When, yes. did, when did people think, well, we're not speaking Latin anymore? Mm -hmm. This is a big discussion in historical linguistics and a big discussion also in, in medieval studies, in, in history. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are different ways to go about it. You could say, well, uh, a language sees uh, Latin uh, died at the moment that the speakers uh, themselves made a difference mm -hmm. between what they spoke and uh, the Latin in the church, because Latin was still spoken in the church. Yeah. And that would be what we call a metalinguistic criterion. Mm -hmm. So uh, we let the, the, the speech community themselves make the distinction between the languages. Mm -hmm. When they say we speak a different language, they speak a different language. Right. But this is also not a, linguistically, this is not a very reliable one. No. Because people can say that they speak different languages, while they actually don't. Like, it's a fuzzy, it's a fuzzy distinction. It's very fuzzy. Yeah. And, uh, well, you can also see how, how these kind of uh, splits can be reinforced. Like in, in the 19th century, most Serbians and Croats, they would be really convinced that they spoke the same language. Uh -huh. but yeah, and linguistically, we speak of one language. We speak of Serbo-Croatian. Yeah. But I think for a lot of Serbians and Croats nowadays to say that they speak the same language would be very insulting. Yeah. So uh, letting the speech community themselves decide what the borders are between languages and what and what uh, language they speak is uh, historically and linguistically not often the most. Uh, reliable measure to, to go about it. Mm -hmm. So ideally we would like to have at least some kind of interaction between the two. Yeah. So we could say, well, this is the moment, for example, that people started uh, talking in the early Middle Ages uh, in the north of France as their, lang as their language as Francaise, as French. Okay. Because that was the moment when they said, well, we don't speak Latin anymore, now we speak Francaise, we speak French. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, how far back can you pull that can you, pull, can you uh, push uh, the, the birth of French? Yeah. And there, linguists can say, well, uh, grammatically, already in the 8th century, in the 7th century, uh, we see these linguistic uh, elements of French which are different from, from Latin. Mm -hmm. So try to make at least a combination of the two. So that, that is more or less my answer to your question. So languages die and languages evolve. And I would say they are two different things. There are languages that die because the speakers switch to another language. Right. And there are languages that evolve. And then the language continues to be spoken, but evolves on and on and on in a specific moment. 
people uh, actually make for themselves a distinction. They say, well, uh, now we call it a different language. Yeah, yeah. So I understand that. I understand that difference. And yeah, fair enough. Uh, it, it, the, the next question that pops up, but it's a bit of a. I wonder if you if you can do something with this question. What is the link between language and culture? Is, I mean, it's or is it one and the same? Or what comes first, language or culture? Or does the culture steer the language? How people use language as such. Um, this is also uh, a very, very controversial topic. I'm so <laughs> and it has sorry been about for, that. <laughs> for a long time. And oh, don't worry about that. It's it's uh, actually a topic that I that I feel very passionate about because cool. yeah. uh, I would say, uh, and I think many, many modern day people would say that the language that they speak is a big part of 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 their of their identity uh-huh. of their cultural self identification. Yes. And I also know, as a, as an, an expat working in uh, uh, in Belgium, that the fact that they speak the same language but quite differently mm-hmm. works very alienating, because my language forms as a self-identity marker, yeah. and for the Belgians as well, they hear that I'm that, that I'm not uh, Belgian. Yes. So the question is, um, how uh, specific uh, is this an, a modern uh, a modern phenomenon? Mm-hmm. So. Is this something that uh, is really linked to what we call the invention of nation states mm-hmm. from the 18th and 19th century, yeah. where uh, these governments in 18th and 19th century uh, Europe really said, well, we are the Germans and we speak the German language and the German language is part of our German culture. Mm-hmm. How much is this an invented idea? Uh, or is this really something that is uh, common to all uh, language identity uh, nexuses, mm-hmm. and I would say that the language identity nexus. So that's the, the technical term for that. Yeah. The link between language and identity, and whether they hang together. I would say that this is old. I would say that also for someone uh, six thousand years ago mm-hmm. on the plains of Crimea, yeah. where they spoke a very very distant ancestor of our language, uh, also they would have ideas about how the language reflects to, the, to their cultural self-identification. Uh, and on the one hand, of course, uh, language reflects part of your culture. Mm-hmm. So the concepts that you have, they will be reflected in the language that you use. Yes. And uh, specific languages can make specific choices. Mm-hmm. Some, some uh, languages use uh, words for concepts uh, that do not exist in other, in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regards, uh, this nexus, language and identities, for historical linguists, very important because it, it, we can use it. We can use the words that we have yeah. in ancient languages to hypothesize about the culture that must be connected to it. Uh, and I think a lot of historians mm-hmm. uh, the last f- 30, 40 years uh, have been way too strict in saying, well, uh, identity is dynamic. Mm-hmm. And we know that identity is dynamic. Mm-hmm. Ident- you can you can even change your self-identification. Like you can say, well, from this moment, I feel so culturally uh, acclimatized to being this that, and everyone recognizes me, recognizes me with my new self-identification. So, yes, culture can be uh, self cultural self-identification um, can be dynamic, mm-hmm. but language is something that is very hard to shake. 
an accent is something that's very hard to shake. Oh sure. Even for my English, like I have an I have an American accent, but there are also elements of my accent in my English that are definitely definitely Dutch. Yes. And I could try to hide that, but it would make for a more unpleasant conversation for me because I would really have to. Yeah, and it's not accent. you. Yes. Well, it's for everyone. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So uh, I would I would. Uh, <clears throat> That is that is the, the point that I'm making is that uh, the language uses as an external and as an internal identity marker, mm-hmm. and that reinforces, of course, the link between culture and language. Yeah, and this is how it is today, and people feel very passionate about that link. Uh-huh. People say, "Well, I'm Spanish, and I and I, and uh, I'm I'm from Spain, and I speak Spanish." Mm-hmm. And my, my, when I speak English, I can't express myself mm-hmm. in my own uh, cultural reference frame because I need to speak Spanish to do that. Uh, but I also think that this was the case in the Middle Ages, right. like a thousand years ago. And I'm very, very positive that this was also the case two thousand years ago, yeah. or maybe even six thousand years ago. So, that, so to that extent, it's it's uh, culture and language in a way is like frozen history. It, yes, definitely. It, it, it hasn't changed. It doesn't change. And, it, and then again, towards the future, it won't change either. The language identity nexus, yeah. this thing, that, that language is a big part uh, of your of, of identity. Mm-hmm. I think this, this, is, this uh, has been a common element in human history. Definitely. Okay, so if if we move on, because I wanted to go towards a topic that you uh, announced before we hit record, which is called um, migration, as such. I want to move towards that, but I want to take a step in between. You're a historical linguist and um, philologist, if I get that correct. Old Germanic, Old Romance, and Old Celtic languages. Now, these are... From my perspective, that's a language barrier that or border that you can draw, but you can also yeah. draw a very cultural border with that um, in terms of the Roman Empire, um, Catholicism, as such. Is what's your take on that? Do you agree? Is it like that? Uh, do you have some interesting background or stories about that? Um, well, it's 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 uh, once again a very interesting question. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, the language border, for example, between Romance and uh, and Germanic, mm-hmm. the one that runs through Belgium, yes. almost horizontally, which is very fascinating, of course, yep. as a as a, a, a historical linguistic fact, um, has has also been discussed for for at least 150 years of, of academic research. Mm-hmm. People have said so. How much is this is this uh, the product of uh, modern developments, at yep. least um, developments from the 16th century onwards, and how further back back into the Middle Ages can we push the mm-hmm. presence of this language border. Right. I would actually say that Belgium itself is a nice example uh-huh. of how culture uh, can change quite dramatically in the course of 200 years, uh-huh. um, because the, uh, the a large part of Belgium um, is Dutch speaking, mm-hmm. and it has been Dutch speaking for the last, uh, yeah, for at least the last 1500 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, a lot of the, okay, let me let, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, a lot of the cultural differences mm-hmm. between uh, the Netherlands and and Belgium, mm-hmm. they are not at 
they are not at the language border. They, no. they, no, they are at the, the Rijksgrens. They are at the border between the Netherlands and Belgium. Yes. And they show that the linguistic border in this regard does not coincide with the cultural border. No. True. So is, of course, there is also what we call an isogloss between uh, the Dutch-speaking area, mm-hmm. cultural isogloss between the, between the Dutch-speaking area and the French-speaking area. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there is a cultural border there. Uh, and how, um, how, to what extent these borders have reinforced each other mm-hmm. or how old they are, this is controversial. And I think it's very hard to say things about this. And you probably also know that historians and economists have also hypothesized about this. For example, what do we do with, with the history of wealth and yeah. the difference between it? Max Weber with uh, uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. Uh, was this the thing that, that, that um, reinforced these differences? back in the 16th century, mm-hmm. it's possible. Um, and as you are hinting at yourself, there's also the presence of the former uh, Roman border. Yeah. And linguistically, this is a very, very, very relevant border. Mm-hmm. Also in the Dutch speaking area, because it kind of, uh, it, it's also, it's, it's the border between Southern Dutch and Northern Dutch. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of traces of uh, what we call Latin influence that really stop at, at uh, at the rivers in the Netherlands. Yeah, so let's 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 just paint a little bit of a geographical picture for those of you, um, the audience that is that is not familiar with the geography here. Yes. We're talking about the Netherlands and and Belgium, in terms of two countries, and uh, the Belgium is above France, and the Netherlands is above. Uh, Belgium again, and um, the Belgium is the country where they speak two languages. One is one is Dutch, and one is uh, is French. And in the Netherlands, the Dutch speak well Dutch, of course. And yes. indeed, at the time, uh, I always say Julius Caesar he uh, went north from Rome and conquered uh, well what that time the Roman Empire, and then probably turned around because uh, in the in the south of the Netherlands because of the weather was too bad, and he said I've had enough I'm I'm going south back home again, and that's indeed what you see if you look at for instance. Um, uh, Catholic churches, Roman Catholic churches, you can see them uh, changing in shape, being very opulent in the south of the Netherlands and in yeah. Belgium, to being very um, modest, and and yeah, well, modest is I guess the word if you look at more Protestant churches, which you can see also in Germany and in, in the rest of the Netherlands, being uh, Julius Caesar calling the Germans barbarians. Uh, so that's sort of the geographical picture that we're talking about. And now I'm giving it back to you, Peter Alexander. Yeah, and of course, the difference between between uh, uh, the architectural styles is that's a trace of, of uh, the 17th century. That's of, later, yes. Of, yeah, of later, of, of first Protestantism and Catholicism going apart, and later uh, Belgians having the Baroque culture, and uh, the Netherlands being Calvinist, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, when it comes to uh, the cult, to, to uh, the historical extent of this cultural border, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's really, really hard to say. And I think we are dealing with with reinforcing uh, aspects of specific of specific elements of language and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we know, for example, that when it comes to Belgium, Belgium was not really the area of uh, a language border in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. It was more like a frontier zone, right. a zone where people had been bilingual for almost a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And you still see that nowadays in Belgium, like True. a lot of Flemish, you, a lot of the Dutch in Belgium is sprinkled with French words. That's very normal for yeah. 
They don't even think about it. No, true. And that, that has been for a long time the case. And uh, this is, the tr this is uh, in a sense, uh, what we see nowadays and what we see um, from the 18th, 19th century onwards, where you really have the idea of, of uh, the nation state, mm -hmm. is that we're dealing with a difficult picture for Belgium because they're kind of stuck in yeah. this historical process. They, are, they, they were a frontier region between two cultures, between two languages, uh -huh. and instead of going with one or going with the other, uh, the, the nation state, well, we can't do state, it's not a nation state, the state kind of froze uh -huh. on this specific uh, frontier area. And this is, of course, the same that we find in Switzerland. Switzerland is all, also a nice example of how we're actually dealing with different cultural and linguistic borders. Yeah. So I would say uh, the, um, the linguistic border um, is old and tells us a lot about history. Mm -hmm. Uh, the cultural border, in some extent, might have been associated with it, but probably not to the same extent as we see nowadays. Mm. Because what we see nowadays, of course, has also been very, very much influenced by the last 150 years. Yes. Things can change dramatically yeah. through the politics of just a generation. Yeah. And definitely in the, the politics of the last six, six generations. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very much. Would you agree, just, just curious uh, to what you say uh, to this question, I always state that um, the Dutch-speaking Belgians are Dutch-speaking Latinos. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I, I would definitely, yeah. I, I, I don't know, isn't there like this proverb that says uh, <laughs> uh, the south of Europe starts below the rivers in the Netherlands? Yeah, something like that I, could be, yeah. I once, I once heard that. But I, I, I think there is definitely something to it. They... Really, um, there, there is this cultural border, and the Belgians, they, they, um, I think that they also would say themselves that they, they share more uh, cultural aspects with the French yeah. and with uh, South of Europe, but that's more your area of expertise. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, the Belgians, well, it, this hinges, yeah. this basically comes to uh, the phenomenon of if, if somebody says, it uh, doesn't matter which culture they're from, if somebody from the United States says, I'm not typical American, these people are typical American. If somebody says, I am not typically Belgian, I am more Dutch, then they, they, you cannot get any more Belgian than that. Oh, Anybody yeah. who states that he's not typically what he, is, what he actually is, he's, he's, he is, <laughs> exemplifies exactly what he is. So, um, but if you go back to um, the form and the shape to, to 2,000 years ago, uh, say Julius Caesar up until 17th century, up until now, there must have been a lot of people moving around, and that's the topic of migration. And that's yes. a, that's a revival that we see currently at this moment again. What parallels can you can you draw between what happened then and what's currently going on right now, which we are trying to get to well grips with really? Um, yeah, I, I think. And thank you once again. Oh, the, the, these questions they really really speak to my my big okay. obsessions, my academic obsessions. So it's my my I'm pleasure. Very happy with this question. Um, <laughs> So I would say there are two things to take away from these. Yeah. And one is that um, the effects of migration can be very long lasting. Actually, of course, what we see nowadays with the, the, the nations and the states of Europe, mm -hmm. this, is, this is just a result of migrations that uh, largely happens uh, at the end of Roman times. Mm -hmm. This is the moment when the proto-states, mm -hmm. the early medieval first kingdoms that later grew out to the states that we have in the 16th, 17th century, yeah. when they were founded. So, um, 
uh, I think it's important not to uh, not to trivialize the effects of migration. Um, they can be very long-lasting, and I think that's a good thing because culture grows whenever it comes into contact with another culture. Yes, and that is what migration does. Migra- migration brings other cultures and other languages into contact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, on the linguistic level uh, and a historical level, uh, the most fascinating case is France. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so when you take the Romance languages, the, lang- the languages like Italian, uh, Spanish, uh, French, um, Portuguese, Romanian, etc., um, you might notice that Italian and Spanish they have a lot more in common than they have in common with French, mm-hmm. especially in the sound. Yes. French sounds very different from Italian and Spanish. Yeah. And also sounds different from Romanian, also sounds different from Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And historical linguists would argue that this is not a coincidence. Because when you see where the border is between what we call the original area of, of the French language, mm-hmm. which is not entire France, because in the south, Mm-hmm. Another language used to be spoken, which we call Provençal. Okay. Provençal. So, or historically, that's not French. So when we look at the border where originally French was spoken, yeah. that is exactly the historical border where the Franks came. And the Franks were the historical people that at the end of Roman times broke, uh, yeah, broke into the Roman Empire when mm-hmm. they conquered large parts of the Roman Empire. And in the north of Gaul, the Franks, they made their kingdom. And they said, well, this used to be called Gaul, but now we don't call it Gaul anymore. We call it the kingdom of the Franks. Okay. This is, of course, why we call it France nowadays, because that's what it means. And exactly the political border of the 6th century is the border of the language between French and Provençal. And Provençal, if you've ever heard someone speak from... from uh, uh, the south of France in their dialect mm-hmm. and not in, in French. Yes. You can even hear a little bit in the dialect of their French. Mm-hmm. It also sounds more like Italian and Spanish. Okay. And the sound, the difference lies there at this old migration border, mm-hmm. this border from 1500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. So the Franks who were speaking Germanic, who were mm-hmm. speaking kind of old Dutch, mm-hmm. very old version of Dutch. They, they invaded, they invaded uh, Gaul, and they made their kingdom. And they spoke, uh, they spoke Old Frankish, and at a certain moment, we talked about this before, mm-hmm. they switched to Latin. Right, yeah. But they couldn't shake their Dutch accent. Okay. And this Dutch accent is actually what made the French language. This Dutch accent is what makes French so different to listen to than, for example, Italian and Spanish. Do you dare so, to say that to French as well? Because these guys are so proud. You're going to get like a, a, a beating. Okay. <laughs> and I think a lot of French linguistic professors, they don't like this story, but they know it's true. <laughs> okay. I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask my father-in-law because he's a Francophone and he's a French teacher. So I'm going to confront him with this. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So the Dutch actually shapes the French language in terms of their... Uh, their pronunciation and the and the fact that that it sounds so different from these yes. Italian Spanish tones tonalities. Yeah, yeah. and and this this border actually that runs through France. The the, the, the border is actually at the River Loire. You know okay. the River Loire uh, is also uh, a border of of cultural significance. There's a big difference between the north of France, as you probably know, and the south of France. Uh huh. Um, and historically, this was also the border between. Uh, different kind of law systems in the Middle Ages. 
and it was the border between different ways of uh, of working the soil of agriculture and a border between uh, different ways of roofing your house and you still can see that like when you come in northern france you see that the old houses are completely different than when you're in the south of france so once again here you see that the effects of a migration that took 1500 years ago mm-hmm. actually for, uh, formed a marker mm-hmm. that in later times might have reinforced growing dynamic identities but the border was still there is there from from your historical background is and and we're living in in the 20th 21st century is there anything or any parallel that you can draw or, or any prediction that you can say that i mean in the in say the coming generations like this is this happened then and history yeah. tends to repeat itself time and again and we don't learn really fast so what's going what's what's going to happen with this with this influx and and the migration that's currently going on in Europe? What effects will we see in one, two, three, four generations from now? Um, it, I think, of course, that uh, there have been a lot of effects in the last thirty years, and this is what makes some people really really scared about about uh, what they then call indigenous identity. Yes, uh, and uh, we can deny that our culture is changing. And all the contacts, the new contacts that we have, they, they change and influence our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, on the linguistic level, I also feel very confident in saying that uh, the different accents that uh, immigrant speech brings, yeah. uh, they will also change our languages. Yeah. So um, immigrant Dutch will definitely, in a couple of generations, leave its traces on the Dutch language. Yes. And in some cases, it even has. We have. We have. Uh, adopted some words that were that uh, that that yeah that were not natively Dutch but that are commonly used. Yeah, this typical Amster- <laughs> typical uh, examples are what people the local language or dialect, if you want, that the Amsterdam people use, and there's a, there are some Jiddish or Jewish exactly. or yeah. Hebrew words incorporated there. Yeah. yeah. And now we don't even uh, feel them as as immigrant no. words. Anymore. No, they're ours as well. They're ours. Yeah, even even the name for the city of Amsterdam, Mokum. Yeah. It's, as Yiddish as it can be, even the Hebrew word is exactly the same, the same word for, for, for city. Um, so this, this shows us that uh, this does not need to be a problem. No. Uh, like the, the, language, the, languages can be, uh, the language can be influenced and the language can change. And just as long as people have the idea of, okay, this, this is all ours. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't reinforce segregation. It doesn't reinforce... Our, uh, our mental device that we have mm. and that's of course where it gets gets difficult as long as as yeah as we see lines through society and say well these people belong and these people don't belong for me at least it gets scary and yeah that's uh, the, the in-group out-group thinking which doesn't really which doesn't really help yes so All right culture well how 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 will it uh, change in the future uh who knows but it will definitely change a lot I think uh, cooking will change. I think mm-hmm. uh, maybe even uh, cultural elements as uh, how we deal with conflict situations, just given enough time in two, three, four generations might really change based on mm-hmm. uh, what people uh, yeah, are used to in, uh, in North Africa or people used to yeah. in the Caribbeans. They influence our culture. Yes. And, and by the time we're there, in, in terms of time, we won't even notice that they came from there in we terms of, of oh, yeah, other parts. They internalized, yes, definitely. They are ours as well, yeah. yes. And, and, yeah, and to, to, get, to very quickly go back to yeah. the history of France again, yeah. I think that's a prime example of what happens. The French, nowadays, they don't even uh, 
uh, highlight the element, the, this migration history elements uh, anymore, just in schools. Mm -hmm. This is not part of what they think is important for the history. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they learn about the end of the Roman Empire. Of course, they, they, they learn about the Franks. But they won't say, well, we are Franks. No. And we used to speak Dutch. No, they don't. No. This is a part of history that's being glossed over. Yeah. And whether that's a good or a bad thing, well, you you can you can uh, uh, differ in me in uh, in opinion yeah. uh, about that. That's but it, shows, the, it is what it is, really. Yeah. yeah. It shows that that uh, history is, is only the product of how we reinvent the past, of what elements we actually say. Well, this is important. This is what what makes us whole, and this is what divides us. Say that again. Hist I like that quote. History is. <laughs> Uh, I'm not really sure how I worded it. <laughs> History is only a way to uh, how we shape the... I don't know. I'm, I'm going to listen back to what we recorded here okay. because I really like the, that um, uh, that quote. That's an excellent quote. Um, all right. It's, it's, um, I need to look. I'm looking at the time here. We're on 39 minutes recording. And yes. generally the topics are, or the interviews are about 30 minutes. But I am fascinated by your topic. And because it, it's so closely to uh, related to what I do in my in my daily life, um, I'd like to uh, go towards the uh, the end and uh, ask you two final questions. One is the question that I prepped you for, and the other question is how to get in touch with you. But first, get let's get to that question. Can you give us a tip um, or three tips or a couple of tips on how to become more culturally competent? Um. Well, the first one would be, and it comes very close to, to the quote that I that I gave you, okay. is that <laughs> is that history is the is uh, the product uh, of our uh, um, of our invented past, of the things that we choose to highlight, of what elements uh, make us whole and what elements divide us, um, and this this uh, living history. Uh, sometimes they say, well, living history only goes back three generations. You only really can connect and mm -hmm. care about the things that happened to your grandparents. And the further back, if, if you go uh, back further than that, you're actually in, in this invented past. Yes. It's an uh, area of legend forming about what happened. And I'm not saying that every, that all our history from the 18th and 19th century is, is, is legend forming. No, of course, we have our historical sciences, which try to reconstruct really what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but how we choose to make the, those things um, uh, relevant in society, of course, is a product of what we highlight and what we don't. Uh, and in that regard, I would say, well, it's, it's just really, really important that we uh, remember that uh, the past is relevant to what we have nowadays in society way, way further than just three generations, six generations. 12 generations, 40 generations, they are just the products of, of, of all those different decisions, of all those different individuals who made decisions about who is prestigious, who do I belong to, yeah. who do I identify with, who is the other. And I think if we realize that, if we realize uh, this significance, the significance that these identity choices are dynamic, that people have moved around for ages, that migrant histories, like the one of the birth of, of French culture and French language, mm -hmm. can be forgotten. Yeah. Well, can be forgotten, can at least not be relevant to uh, to ideas of identity nowadays in France. Yes. I think that that can really help us because it makes us aware of um, of choosing to unite instead mm -hmm. of choosing to segregate. Yeah. That's one giant tip. 
um, which encompasses, I think, a lot and a lot and a lot. History is the product of our invented past. I like that. I'm going to uh, elaborate on that in the show notes that you can find back in culturematters.com and then go to the podcast tab if you want to listen to this interview and, of course, the more and more interviews as well. Uh, Professor Dr. Peter Alexander Kerkhoff, Kirkhoff, which means cemetery as well. <laughs> yes. um, how can people get in touch with you? If they I'm, I'm not a professor. So. Okay, okay, sorry about that. Okay, um, so Dr. Kerkhoff, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Um, you can reach me on my uh, university email, mm-hmm. which is uh, peter.kerkhoff at ugent.be. Um, and I think that's the easiest way to uh, get into contact with yes. me. Yes, so it's Peter, yeah. P-E-T-E-R dot K-E-R-K-H-O-F at U-G-E-N-T dot B-E. Yes. That should be it. All right, I'll put that in the show notes as well for those of you who are listening in the car or mowing their lawn at this particular moment. You never know what people do. Peter Alexander, thank you so much for elaborating on this. I knew this was going to be good, and it's it's one of the longer, uh, we're almost 45 minutes, one of those longer topics that I, I just am fascinated about. So I'm very happy that you came on board, and um, I'm pretty sure that we'll talk to each other in the future. Thank you very much for your interest. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it. We straightened the record as well in terms of when it comes to um, Peter Alexander's uh, his academic title. Uh, I hope that was all clear. So at the time of the recording, he is not a doctor. He is Peter Alexander Kerkhoff. And by the time that you might listen to this towards the end of 2017, then indeed he might not. He will have the academic title. All right. A couple of things before I say goodbye. What is it that I want to share with you? If you want to see what we look like when we recorded this uh, this podcast, you can go to culturematters.com slash YouTube and you'll find a list of uh, videos there of all the podcast recordings and you can actually watch what's going on as well. If you like what I do with these interviews, leave a review in iTunes. It'll help the visibility of this podcast tremendously and I would really appreciate this. If you would know anybody that makes a good guest, then why don't you give me a shout out, drop me a line and we see what we can make out of your suggestions. All right, and finally, there's the uh, the Culture Matters app, which is live in the Android store and in the uh, iTunes store as well. Get everything that I do with Culture Matters in one nice, compact app for that. And remember, Culture Matters. Take care. Thanks for listening. Talk to you in two weeks' time. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.